Hello, everybody. Today is December 13, 2023. I'm honored to have with me Gad Elon, uh, the Jeffrey A. Keswin Professor and Professor of Operations, Information and Decisions at the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania. Professor Elon is an expert in the area of supply chain and scaling. And welcome and thank you for joining us. Thank you for the invitation. It's great to be here. I was very excited that you're going to be here today, and it's right before Christmas when everyone's worrying, are we going to have all the right toys and all the right shirts and everything in in uh, the stores or on Amazon? Can you tell us a little bit about the complexities of supply chain management? Yeah. So, so when we use the term supply chain, maybe even the term chain is actually the wrong way to think about it. When, when I think about supply chain, it's much more of a network, a network that starts from raw material go through many different steps from manufacturing to logistics to a inbound logistics so, you know things need to get to the us outbound logistics things from the port to a warehouse nearby and then all the way to you and to you it can be to the store or it be to you can be through shipping that is what we call a supply chain now what makes it complex is the fact that there are so many different steps here each one of them can be owned by different firms right so when you buy from Amazon it clearly was not manufactured by Amazon it will let's say you're buying from Amazon a toy this toy was a, a sold by Hasbro and Hasbro didn't actually manufacture that they manufactured there is a third party that contra manufacturers manufacture that and that contra manufacturer had to order the raw material and, and so think about, let's talk about toys for a second. Um, most of the toys are going to be sold in the holiday season. I would say 95% of the toys are going to be sold between Black Friday and January 2nd or 3rd. If, if you forgot a gift and you may right. want to go. Right. And oh, there is not enough capacity in the world to manufacture all of these toys. So what do they do? There is a... a a trade show in the beginning of every year in the Javits Center, just outside, just in New York, a, in the area of near Hudson Yards, where all the toy innovators are presenting their toys a year in advance, sometimes two years in advance, and, and all the big toy companies are going and deciding what to order. Um, and now throughout the year, this entire supply chain is geared toward making sure that when you go to either Amazon or you know what was in the past, Toys R Us, the toy that you want to buy is going to be there at the right time, at the right place, at the right quantity, at the right quality. Supply chain is exactly about that. It's about all these different steps along the way, trying to anticipate who you're, who you're going to be and when you're going to go to the store and what your willingness to pay and make sure that the thing is there for you to buy. So you can actually pay and go and take it to your uh, whoever you want to gift it to. Um, and that's very complex and very hard to do because of many reasons you need there are issues around information, clothes, how do you inform people about things, about shortages, about forecasts, a, a lot of movement of money, of cash, right? If you're a manufacturer, you need to spend a lot of money on, on, on a, a manufacturing that, labor, but you're going to be paid only after a while. A, and of course, the product needs to be made sure to be in the right place at the right time. So supply chains are really, really complex, and that was just an illustration of that. And now I was like... I I was looking at toys, but this morning I was looking in the kitchen and I was looking at the refrigerator and the microwave and how many different parts go into that, where they come, how they have to assemble them. But the interesting thing about toys to me is that it's almost like I know they, they talk about the news vendor model. 
that you say most of the toys are sold between Thanksgiving and January 3rd. If they have too many toys left over on January 7th, 8th, or 9th, that's a cost that they may not recover completely because people may not buy them anymore. Right. So, so let me first of all clarify, you use the term news vendor, and that's a term that's very a, dear to my heart. And, and, and because it's, it's a term that, that is the basic model of, of inventory in supply chain, let me explain why we call it the news vendor model. If, if any of the audience watched Bugs Bunny, they, there was always this guy that uh, was holding the newspaper and trying to sell the newspaper. Newspaper um, has this interesting feature, which is today's newspaper has no value tomorrow. Uh, no one wants to read tomorrow. And then, but you're trying to predict many things about this today, the demand today. So, so it's a nice day, for example, people maybe are more likely to go in the street and pick up a newspaper. And if it's an important news day because something happened, people are the demand is going to be high. But if it's just a, an ordinary day, no one is going to buy it. So no one. So you're trying to make a decision, and you're really balancing co two costs: the cost of having too much and the cost of not having enough. And the reality is that you're almost always going to have too much or not enough. So let me give you an example for a news vendor model uh, that we see every year, not the holiday season, but a little bit after that. If you watched, and I'm sure many of your people in the audience watch the Super Bowl, uh, the minute the Super Bowl ends, you'll notice that immediately everybody has T-shirts with a winning team saying, you know, they are the winner right. of the Super Bowl and hats. T-shirts you can print on demand. Hats is actually very hard to print on demand. So what do they do? They print both. And they print both because the willingness to pay for these things is the highest right after the game ends. You, you just enjoy watching the game. You want to go to the website, order that. You saw everybody has, in, has the, the hat and everything. So what do they do with those, right? If there is a losing team, what do they do with all the equipment of the losing team? What they do with that is that they donate that. They donate that to, so for example, there, there's a photo of kids in Nicaragua right. uh, having a shirt of a Patriots 19-0. And, and a, as a, a you know, New England Patriots hater, I love to see that shirt because uh, it's a good memory of the fact that there was really never a 19-0. It was, <laughs> but they printed this 19-0 for the sake of potentially having 19-0. That was the season where ultimately they lost to the Giants. But you say, so what do they do? They basically say, we know we have this shirt. What can we do with that? They basically give it as a charity and they take the charitable deduction. A, a deduction, exactly. What do other firms do? So if you look at, for example, Nordstrom, Nordstrom has something called Nordstrom Rack. Nordstrom Rack or, or Off Fifth Avenue or Last Call from Neiman Marcus are basically channels where Nordstrom, when they decide to, let's say, to, to buy a jacket, to order a jacket, a, to have an inventory, it allows them to basically say, well, if we don't sell it, Right, because what is the cost of overage, the cost of underage? Let's have underage. Underage is really a customer comes in and we don't have the product on the shelf. Most of the time, that's usually extremely expensive if the margin is very high. The cost of overage, which is if I have too much, what can I do with that? Sometimes I really have to throw it, right? Newspaper, I, I have to give up yesterday's newspaper because it has no value. What the NFL does is reduce that cost by giving it. And, and taking the deduction, what 
Nordstrom does is selling it at a slightly discounted price to Nordstrom Rack, uh, and rather than giving it to JCPenney. Now, what you do here is because you don't really lose so much money when you don't when you have too much inventory, it allows you to actually have a higher service level. So you, you, it, it allows you to take a much bigger bet on in your main channel, which is Nordstrom or, or, or again, whatever it is. So I would say this notion of news vendor or this kind of trade-off between shall I have too much or not enough, given a very, very uncertain world, is really what the core of the last step of the supply chain is. And it's interesting because, I mean, we could think of lots of examples. It could be rooms in a hotel. It could be seats on an airplane. Once that exactly. plane takes off, that revenue is gone forever. Exactly, exactly. And so news. So it's it's interesting because airlines don't call it news vendor. They call it the Littlewood formula, but it's the same, which basically means it's exactly that, right? Once the plane departed, you cannot go back and sell that seat, which is why you see overbooking, which is why they will do everything they can to sell until the last minute. Everything, everything, everything is geared toward the fact that the moment it left, that seat is just not a, a valuable anymore. So as you said, it, we see it in many cases. In fashion, we see it in a, hotels, we see it in concerts. No one can buy a ticket for yesterday's Taylor Swift concert. So what you do there is use dynamic pricing to make sure that every single seat is sold. Now, what about, um, okay, so we think about that, but you also had experience at one point, you were a consultant for El Al on call centers. Right. And a call center, when I'm calling a call center to make a reservation on an airline, to get information on, on a product or whatever, I want someone to answer the phone quickly. Right. And if there's too long of a wait, I may hang up and not buy it. How do they manage that demand? Or it could be for a hospital or a medical practice that there's enough people there. How do... Similarly. So similarly in the sense that it's slightly different in the sense that, um, you know, if, if I think about a flight, if you come there and, the, and there is no seat on the flight, even though you might be willing to pay a lot, there's really no way to insert you into the flight once the flight was sold out. In a call center or in a, a hospital, um, there are slightly more levers. So one lever is waiting time, right? You're willing to wait. And waiting is actually, while most of us, hate waiting, waiting is, is a good demand modulator. What I mean by that is that if you really have a crucial issue that you need to, uh, to change, I had to change a while ago a flight on United during COVID, and I waited six hours on, on, on the call. Why? Because I really had to change that flight. There was really no other option. And so other people that potentially did not have left that call. So waiting is a good measure. Second thing, Second measure that they have is priorities. If they deem you, right, so I've not seen airlines, for example, come and kick someone off the flight. Well, they do it sometimes, to be honest, uh, just because there is a higher paying passenger. Um, definitely, they don't do it once you sit on the plane. They might do it before. Right, right. <laughs> but, right. Um, but in a call center, because everybody's waiting, they can actually say, well, let's start prioritizing. We see that you're calling because you have a flight tomorrow, and or actually a flight in 15 minutes, maybe we need to prioritize that. So El Al, in every call center, call center that I work with, had usually used priorities, waiting time, and information. So I've done work with 
different call centers on what information we want to provide customers. So I'll give an example. Um, Southwest Airlines, for example, for a long while would give you only two types of information. They will tell you either there is really no wait or that the wait is very long. And their goal was to basically say, if you're really calling with a really important uh, a, a, a issue, we want you to know that the call is going to be very long. Like in my case with United, I was not waiting on the call for six hours. I was just basically letting the phone be there because I knew that there were going to be a very, very long wait. So by informing customers about the waiting time, you actually, and I've done quite a bit of research on that, you can see that the effective cost of waiting, which is something we can actually impute and understand by looking at how people behave, if you give information on really long delays, you allow customers to better manage their time. And by doing that, it's a win-win-win. It's a win because the firm has limited capacity and, and, and you don't want to annoy customers. It's a win for those who are on the call because they know how to know how to strategize and prioritize their time. And it's also a win for those who left because they left and they were going to call during time where they're actually being going to be more and more, or at least shorter waiting time. So Call centers and service organizations have one big advantage compared to supply chains, which is scarcity translates into waiting rather than shortage, just like inability to get something. So it's, in, it's interesting, but I guess they have these algorithms and these call centers could predict when people are going to be calling them. Yes. On historical patterns. Yes. But then what, like, you know, what if you have, if you remember from last holiday season, there was this a, a, a storms in Buffalo and in Seattle and massive cancellation in the U.S. A Southwest Airlines, in fact, took them three weeks to recover from these. They lost many luggages and everything. But most airlines had some issues for a day or two. There's really no way you can predict that. And it's also very hard to predict what the type of skills you need to answer every employee, every call. Right, so I'll, I'll give an example. One of the key questions that El Al had at the time was, should they have separate call center for some of their best customers? So think about the following, right? Like if you're a a, a premium a premier customer, whatever the name, you know, different airlines will have like one right. K for United. Um, if you have your own dedicated call center, you're going to be answered very quickly. But that means that, the, that this call center might be completely idle while the general purpose call center will be completely a, a full and in fact will have extremely, extremely long delays. So the key question for them is to what extent you want to allocate people. Um, it's a little like when you stand in line sometimes for check-in. I, I, I try not to check in anything, but if I sometimes make the mistake and bring a luggage for whatever reason, then you need to, and you see that there is a, Dedicate. There are two people there waiting for the first class, business class customers, and once in a while they call people from the general line as well, right? And the reason for that, and that's actually a smart idea, because what you try to do, you try to say, well, if I segment them too much, I cannot guarantee good waiting them to anyone. If I pull them together and once in a while utilize them properly, I can actually generate lower waiting time with less capacity. But once in a while, I'm going to annoy some of my best customers because they're going to come there and they're going to see a coach customer standing in line um, where I'm here waiting for my service. So for in call centers, you don't see that, unlike a regular service, right? You don't really know who is doing what, 
But the key question in all of these is how do I manage my, even though I can predict demand, I cannot predict it really at the time where there is crisis, when there is, you know, and, and, and airlines always have issues. It's when I say issues, it can be technical issues, mechanical issues, can be weather and the heaviest travel time are also times where there is quite a bit of weather disruptions. So it's almost always there is an issue. Uh, same for Amazon, right? Amazon, when is the time when they stretch their logistics? It's during the holiday season when the demand goes by order of magnitude. And even they can, if they can predict it, actually having the right capacity at the right time is extremely hard. So they have to predict this in advance. Now, I, I noticed in one of your articles, I thought I saw it somewhere, where you mentioned that, well, you have to trust the algorithms versus the humans. The algorithms can only predict what's happened in the past. They can't always predict uh, a new event that has occurred. And you're saying that last Christmas time might have been a unique time for Southwest Airlines because of the storms throughout the country. Exactly. Um, right. When, uh, to, to some extent, I think this is really... Um, one thing that we saw during COVID quite a bit, which is, generally speaking, if you ask me, are algorithms going to be better in predicting demand, supply, inventory from today to tomorrow? Or com when compared to humans, I will say the answer is no, 99.9% of the time, uh, algorithms are going to do a better job than humans. But now you start realizing that there are all kinds of things that are not predictable by or or not trained on by the algorithms. Algorithms are only as good as basically the information that we're trained on. So if you've never seen anything that look like COVID, the algorithm will not know how to react to that. So one of the main issues that that's the article you're referring to was the fact that managers at Walmart basically said, you know, the reason we see these significant shortages on, on at Walmart on the shelves is because the algorithm is make, is recommending things that we as human realize just do not make any sense because the disruptions that happened during COVID, they, they were actually inserting too much inventory into the system. Then too much inventory resulted in, in, in basically in a situation where there is really no reason to order, but then they didn't, they, they didn't really activate ordering early enough. So Walmart allowed their store manager to override these algorithms. And that's going to be true when you see something along the lines of what we discussed before about Southwest, right? When you have like multiple storms now in multiple regions of the U.S. that result in significant losses of, of a, a luggage, then I think the key question is going to be, is does the algorithm know how to react or should we basically say, forget about the algorithm for some time, let's the human just try to find the most common sense solution, we'll come back to the algorithm to run the day-to-day. -day. And that's a tension here, right? It's a tension we're going to see more and more over the next few years. As we're going to rely more and more on algorithms, we'll know less on how to do when we're not relying on an algorithm, right? Because we, if we don't let people run the system for some time, how will we expect them to actually make the right decision? At the same time, if we don't let these algorithms train on more and more data, these algorithms will never become better. So that's so the give and take between both of them. Exactly. We need to keep some ability for people to override it for local information, new information to to be added, but at the same time, we need to make sure that people rely and understand most of the time, 99% of the time, the algorithm is going to give them a better recommendation than what their common sense tell them. Right now, um, with, with the algorithm, another item that you've written about is scaling of businesses. And I, a lot of that is trying to figure out where 
the bottlenecks and how can you fix it? And also, should you be buying, is it a, still a good business if it can't be scaled? Yeah, so let me start with the second question, which is a great question. Um, I should say, when you say you, the question is really, who is you? Who the are buyer, you? The owner of the business. No, no, no. But 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 I think this is really the question, right? If you are a VC, um, a VC should only buy things that are absolutely scalable, right? Because given the stage that they're in, um, an investment does not make sense unless it can be a return of, let's say, 100x, 1,000x, in which case, unless something is can operate at a very big scale, large scale with extremely low vari variable cost and very high a, a return, a, there's really no reason for an investment that's extremely risky to make sense. Um, having said that, I would say one of the main issues that happened over the last, I would say, 20 years is that it became much, much easier to start businesses than ever uh, because there is a te primarily technology-based businesses. Why? Because the technology stack became significantly cheaper and easier to build. But if you want to start a technology firm, you don't need to know how to code. You don't need to know how to... Uh, uh, you, you can operate everything within you know, the app store, charge people, pay people. Everything has to be there. You can outsource most of the activities. If you want to do a product, I mean, you can have the entire supply chain run completely without any intervention, right? Like you, you, from FedEx to Shopify to Stripe to everything. Um, the difficulty, however, is that because of that, it became very easy to compete on, like if you see a good idea, very easy to replicate. So what are the implications here? If something is extremely scalable, it's going to attract also more capital that are going to achieve exactly that, right? I mean, if you remember like dog, Years ago, there was a craze of a Uber for dog walkers. It yes. was WAG and a few of these, right? These are businesses that basically said, you know, we can actually create an app, recruit people to walk dogs. We'll then recruit demand and, and, and it'll be instantly scalable because we don't need any capital. We don't need any, not any capital. We don't need any capacity to run that, like, like Uber. Um, I need a lot of capital, however, to be able to attract both sides to join in the market. And immediately there were like five, Five of these firms competing. Uh, ultimately, all of them, uh, and, and all of them did not scale that well because I mean they had to compete on every single customer that could continuously try between these. But these are examples for businesses that are extremely scalable, extremely scalable in a sense that as you get more walkers, you're going to get more customers, you're going to get more customers, more walkers are going to be in the system, right? That's the, the, the dream when we talk about businesses, if they manage to do that. Compare that now to a business that is a local business that actually is doing a HVACs, for example, right? Like installing HVACs, maintaining HVACs. Let's say you have a, like I'll give an example. I, I, in my class, I talk about PALS. PALS is, is a burger chain uh, that exists only uh, in Tennessee, uh, only in a small region of Tennessee. Uh, and extremely well run, extremely efficient, uh, won the Malcolm Baldridge Award and, and, and really, really amazing, but not so scalable uh, because so much depends on their supply chain, so much depends on operations, so much depends on recruiting people, everything depends on that. Now, if you ask me which one am I interested in investing in, WAG or PALS, um, 
WAG, you might get a thousand X return, but most likely you're going to get nothing. At PALS, you were never going to get more than a 3x return um, or maybe a 5x return if you're a really good operator, but it's guaranteed almost because- it's a, recurring, it's a recurring sort of income stream there. Exactly. And what makes it appealing is the fact that it's not scalable. So uh, there is no attractive capital is not going there. And, and but it, and it, well, those are where the bargains are. And then you think about it, some of these businesses like Airbnb, they don't own hotels. Uber doesn't own cars. And you, you could just do that effectively, you know, from the confines of your uh, den or your office at home, a lot of these businesses. Right. But then everybody else can do them, right? So like what I mean, everybody else, like Airbnb was such a great firm and, and it is such a great firm and a huge fan, but now they lose more and more ground to hotels. They lose more and more ground to booking.com. Um, and so what you see is that many of these things are... are, are creating an immense amount of value for some, but actually extremely unpredictable. So if I'm an investor, I have to ask myself, which one, what is my competitive advantage? Is that in, in identifying these ideas well enough? Because if you invested in Airbnb, when it was like seed, pre-seed, A, B, maybe even the C round, you did quite well. If you bought it slightly before IPO, I'm not sure that you'd have done so well. If you've bought an HVAC business, you probably know what you bought. And so probably the, the ability to control and, and, and know the likelihood of your ability to generate cash flow from that is much, much higher. Well, they have a defined market, they have defined customers, yep. and they have recurring revenues. And to the extent that they could sell um, service contracts to their customers, the revenues could become much more predictable. Exactly. So the point here is that scalability is a lens to look at things. When I say scalable, for me, scalable are, are businesses are businesses where a the rate by which you increase revenue outpaces the rate of increasing cost, right? So you have to, if you put 50 cents into making a dollar and make again, 50 cents to make another dollar, another 50 cents to make another dollar, you're not scalable in my language. Uh, now scalable businesses are very appealing for some investors, but they're absolutely not appealing for every investor exactly because of that. Because if you're scalable, it means that by definition, that area is going to attract a new type of capital, and you'd need to have a much stronger differentiation compared to the non-scalable business that usually their differentiation comes from locality. But so the, the attractive businesses for many people are scalable businesses, but for many of us, we may just want to buy the businesses that can't be scaled, but they have a defined market segment that they could. Exactly. exactly. Is there anything else? I got to tell you, this is so fascinating. And I just keep thinking about all these parts and all the things that have to come together for the refrigerators to work, for the computer screens to arrive on my uh, front steps from Amazon? I think the the, the, the last thing I'll, I'll say is that what makes also supply chain interesting is that until now we looked primarily on what I call the forward supply chain. The thing that happened from raw materials with the different assemblies until it get to your, to your kitchen. But now what happened, let's say if you bought something that you don't really like, or you get a gift that you don't really like and you don't want to return it. What happens there? So for many, many years, uh, returns were free. And I say free, you basically didn't have to pay. Many times didn't have to pay shipping costs back, didn't have to pay restocking costs and could ship everything back at no cost. Um, the implication for that for most firms was a significant cost because the reverse logistics, which is a supply chain backwards from the moment you return it, now it has to be scanned. Now, it's to be sorted, checked, and decide what to do with that. Do we send it back to the shelf? Unlikely. 
Do we sell it through another channel? Maybe. Do we do we send it to a landfill? There was a study a few years ago in Canada when they bought eight backpacks, new, completely new, put GPS device in each one of them and send them back immediately, new, in, in the package. Um, a quarter of them with, immediately went to a landfill. Uh, the rest, at the time of the study, only half of them were back at the shelf. Why? Because that reverse logistics, which is where, if, like, if I think about supply chain, a lot of that is about creating economies of scale. The reverse logistics has no economies of scale. And, and so what we see on the last few years is more and more firms realizing that if you think about where carbon footprint is, if you want to be ESG, or where a lot of money is lost is on these returns. So during this holiday season, we see more and more firms questioning the orthodoxy, which is, should we accept everything for free? Notice Amazon, for example, encourages to return things at the local Whole Foods. Basically what they say, if you want to return it, that's fine, but come and return it on our terms. So come to Whole Foods and maybe buy something at the outrageous price that we have here for you. Um, and also, at the same time, we can actually create some economies of scale in doing that because now you have to ship it back and we can actually ship not one at a time, but actually ship a whole truckload of return items. Now, I read that when Amazon bought Whole Foods, one of the reasons is that 80% of the country's population is within 20 minutes of an Amazon store, of a Whole Foods store. Yes. So the, the part of that was the realization that if they want, Amazon is a big firm, but it's still small compared to Walmart. And it's extremely small when it comes to grocery. And Amazon realizes that if you want to be the retail giant that you want to be, then you need to own grocery. And, and, and they just realized that just building it from scratch, which they tried many, many times doesn't work. So that's what they bought Whole Foods to do two things. One is to be a store. Second one is to be sort of like a, a peak and packed location for delivery. So Amazon is, we're talking now in 2023, almost 2024, Amazon has not figured out yet grocery and Walmart, sorry, and, and, and Whole Foods is part of that a, a plan, but things are not going as well as they planned, to be honest. Because I had to return something to Amazon, uh, to Whole Foods a few weeks ago, and I asked them, how many bins do you send back every day? And the numbers were huge. Yes. It, it was just huge. And I guess they have one big truck that backs up there. Exactly, right? Because Amazon Prime is such a successful uh, idea, right? I mean, like the, the notion of subscription where you just click and things show up in your home, but if it's really easy to order, it's going to be really, really likely you're going to return it. And, and, and so these trucks are just taking loads and loads and loads of things that are going to be returned um, because people just got accustomed to the fact that why do I need to try something? I don't, if I can just order two sizes, what we call bracketing, you order one size above, one size below, and you try. Um, you know, Amazon has 25,000 different hangers. So you buy three, you try which one you like, and you send the two you don't like back. Like as consumers, we were educated. This is the way to think about commerce. It's, it's an amazing model. And I got to tell you, God, it's just been fascinating speaking with you. I'm going to have one more request of you is that I'd like to interview you again on another podcast in the future, if your time permits, but it's just fascinating. And I see why all this, why you're so such a popular teacher at Wharton, because the students just love you and love uh, what they learn from you. So just thank you very much. No, thank you. And, and great to be here. Really enjoy the conversation. Hello, this is Bob Chalfin. The second edition of my book, A Practical Guide to Buying a Business is now available.
This book, along with my book, A Practical Guide to Selling a Business, can be purchased on Amazon. All proceeds received from the sale of my books are donated to nonprofit organizations.